Martin, welcome back. Um, if you can give him a quick rundown of where we were before, remember you'll be watching this on the on or about the first of August. So don't think we haven't changed in a week or had a shower. No, you still smell pretty good there, Martin, because this was in two parts and we did it on the same day for you. Um, so there you go, Martin. Can you explain right. to everyone well, where the fraud is? We'll drop the evidence. We'll drop all the um, um, facts. Uh, because we are a fact and evidence-based show, of course. Mm -hmm. And, of course, during this, we will lay the challenge out to anyone to try to disprove what we're saying. Every time we've done this, Martin, every time we've asked people to prove us wrong, crickets, nothing. No one ever comes. Getting pretty lonely. Right, well, we have a paper trail for everything that we're talking about. In other words, uh, when a historian uh, needs to establish facts... And say you find a document like uh, the Littlewood family found in 1989, you then have to find out if that document has a pedigree. It's got to go back to a source. Correct. And uh, what we've established, I think, in a, a jumble of <laughs> many concepts uh, through the first part of this, um, is that uh, there's definitely a great pedigree uh, a fully established pedigree for the Littlewood document found in 1989, um, going all the way back to a solicitor in uh, the 1840s called Henry Littlewood. And then it goes back to Consul Clendon, who uh, asked for a copy of the uh, document from uh, Hobson, the uh, Lieutenant Governor of New Zealand. So we have a totally established pedigree. And um, I've been asked to sort of comment a little bit about how I got into all of this. What happened is uh, in 1966, I left Placid, Tranquil, Together, New Zealand and went overseas for the big OE, as so many people did. And then I returned eight years later and I found New Zealand wasn't really New Zealand anymore. We had all of this internal strife and uh, people uh, posturing and marching and okay, uh, we had basically brought in from overseas all of their gripes and moans, uh, everything to do with uh, the Vietnam War, the civil rights stuff in the United States. Um, and um, New Zealand was really um, a bit volatile at the time. Anyway, um, I also noticed that our history was being changed, like, I'd grown up knowing that there were pre-Maori people, and if I had have ever said to my grandmother, um, oh, I think there were people here before the Maori, she would have said, of course there were, everybody knows that. Mm. So our history books were replete with uh, references to the Patupayarahe, the Turihu. Quite often people put them all under the uh, umbrella term Moriori or something like that. And um, But I noted at the time... This Marxist, Marxist move to uh, completely get rid of our history books. And so the works of Alston Best or Edward Tregear or James Cowan or even Sir George Grey, who was a prolific writer of, um, you know, the pre-Maori history based on the oral traditions that have been brought down, um, you know, through the Maoris about the Tangata Whenua people, uh, the people who had been there before, um, described as Urukehu Kiripufero, um, that they had a very light complexion to their skin and they had red hair, blonde hair, blue eyes, a lot of them. Um, Sounds like my peeps. Yeah, well, 
this was all getting stripped out of our history books, and I was wondering why. And I kept waiting for our academics to come back and rectify the situation, but they weren't doing it. And um, we had these people marching around saying, oh, we don't read that history anymore because it's Eurocentric or it's ethnocentric. So they had all of the Marxist buzzwords to get completely rid of our established history, which was um, written from the dawn of the colonial era right on through and mostly based on the stories that were passed down by the, the, the Tuhunga, um, you know, uh, the elders of the, the Maori people. Okay. Uh, also at the time, we had leftover groups of the earlier people that we called the Waka Blondes. And so I tried to keep that history alive. I tried to refer back to it when it was being... Um, Decimated. Yeah, and, and it was like we were being enveloped by a kind of enforced amnesia where we were forced to forget our history that it was the established history for yeah. the last uh, 135 years or so. Anyway, uh, the academics weren't doing anything about it, so I, I began to uh, participate in that to some degree. And in the course of doing that one time, I had a, uh, a down-in-the-mouth uh, letter come in from a Maori gentleman who said, Martin, you white racist, why don't you tell the people about the Treaty of Waitangi? And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. It was a, a really horrible subject. We were getting bludgeoned severely over the head by the Treaty of Waitangi. But I thought, oh, well, a challenge is a challenge. So <laughs> I decided to get involved. Now, I remembered a TV program um, where this was in 2003 uh, by this point. I remembered a TV program where a lady called uh, Beryl Needham was standing by a bush and this document had just been found in her mother's deceased estate and they were talking about it. And then there was a lovely little splash on uh, TV about it Then everything went silent. So, okay, I had a challenge to find out about the Treaty of Waitangi and I remember the speculation earlier that the final draft of the Treaty of Waitangi might have been found back in 1992. So I got on the phone and I called up the Littlewood family and I think it was the first try I got them out at Manurewa. From then on, um, I was able to go out and meet with them many times and they were wonderful, gracious people. They gave me copies. They had to go digging for them because uh, the Littlewood Treaty was just about totally forgotten now, the, the document they'd found. And they had to go digging to see if they could find it, and I got photocopies of it, and then I got some of the family genealogy and histories, and that led on to many discussions and uh, also uh, to learning a huge amount. And finally, it tweaked when I got through a document that uh, was just in-house in archives that the author of the Littlewood document was James Busby, the British consul. And then I knew, hey, this is very significant because we know that on the 4th of February, 1840, he had acted as the secretary to actually pen the uh, dictation of Hobson. And they had worked out uh, the final draft of the Treaty of Waitangi, the mother document that became 
Te Tiriti o Waitangi. And um, so uh, I later found out that uh, the pedigree was perfect all the way back to Hobson, that Hobson had lent the final draft to uh, James Reddy Clendon, the US consul, so that he could send a copy to James Forsyth, John Forsyth, the American Secretary of State. And then, unbeknown to Clendon, uh, after he'd sent his dispatch, a guy by the name of Commodore Charles Wilkes, who was uh, the head of an Antarctic expedition um, and a flotilla of, uh, I think it was five to seven ships, they had gone down into Antarctica. They'd been beat up by the uh, ice flows and icebergs, and they had been told, go to the Bay of Islands if you're in trouble. And uh, so there were two ships in the harbour uh, that were badly battered and uh, undergoing repairs. And then the USS Vincennes, the flagship of the uh, fleet, came into the harbour and Wilkes, to his uh, great... Uh, Joy found that two of his ships were there. They hadn't sunk after all, and uh, they were under, undergoing repairs. So he also wanted a copy of the treaty in English and the treaty in the Maori language. And uh, they happened to be in the possession at this point of James Reddy Clendon, the U.S. consul. So Clendon uh, gave them to Wilkes, or at least Wilkes came to Clendon's home and transcribed them. And in the course of doing so, he meticulously copied spelling mistakes within the uh, the document. And um, what had happened is uh, James uh, Stuart Freeman, Hobson's secretary, uh, earlier on had spelled the word sovereignty wrong in a document and uh, anyway uh, somehow this affected uh, Busby who wrote uh, some of the final drafting uh, stuff of the treaty or was the major contributor and uh, before it turned into the final draft and uh, so he had copied uh, sovereignty wrong as well leaving out the telltale e but also the word seeded had been spelled wrong where they'd thrown in an I. And uh, then there was another spot where uh, Busby was supposed to write chiefs in the final English draft, but um, uh, at least queen, but he wrote chiefs instead and then had to cross it out. So Wilkes meticulously copied every spelling mistake that uh, Busby had put in there um, he was a little bit hurried in a little area at the top and he left out the first sovereignty and he put in it instead, uh, I can't quite remember it now, but uh, a, a slightly different piece of text. But he recovered from that and um, the rest of it was, was perfect. So we know from this that what Wilkes had in his hands on uh, the, I think it was the 6th of April, 1840, was exactly the same document that had been found by the Littlewood family in, uh, you know, uh, 1989. So, you know, we know that it has existed despite all of the spin uh, since uh, February, March, and April 
as commissioned by the New Zealand government when the government decided that because the final draft of the treaty had been lost sometime in February 1840, that, um, you know, they needed a text for reference uh, for their legislation. <clears throat> okay. So, so, so up here, um, audience will be looking at that, the very long one is the fluff, fraud. That is absolute fraud. What Maturata was able to do was completely eliminate our only valid Treaty of Waitangi in the Maori language that it had to be in and replace it with a completely new text that he could tamper with and uh, that he could add to and that uh, he could reinvent. It was a case of muddying the waters so he could basically initiate or bring in what we now know as the grievance industry. Which is actually quite ironic when you think about it because, remember, a lot of Māori out there say um, uh, they subscribe to the United Nations uh, position that any conflicting treaty between two nations, it is the uh, text in the native language that takes precedence. So yeah. we're sort of hoping it does take precedence, aren't we? Well, absolutely it does take precedence. And, and Hobson said to the emissaries who were going out to do treaty presentations uh, around the country that... It had to be uh, given or trans transmitted in the Maori language. Yeah. And he said, um, you will not let anyone sign the treaty who does not understand it. So that's exactly what he said. And then you've got the words of the missionaries themselves, uh, Reverend Henry Williams. Uh, he, uh, after uh, the meeting on the 5th, he had to go to Titi Marai and all through the night, they went over the the Maori wording back and forth and explaining everything until everybody was crystal clear as to what the um, treaty truly meant, what the consequences would be in ceding sovereignty to Queen Victoria, uh, you know. And um, so they they came on the morning of the sixth, and they ended up signing the treaty. And of course, you've got a whole generation now <laughs> who have been brought up on this, and these are the ones marching the streets. Um, saying white privilege, adopted the Marxist ideology of cancel culture, of completely destroying our real history. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> ironically, it's actually one of supposedly their own that have taken them for the ride. Well, the thing is, over the years, we've constantly heard, honour the treaty, honour the treaty. And we've been trying to. Well, our people have <laughs> honoured the treaty, but... Activists and dissidents and greedy people, uh, grievance industry people, have dishonoured the treaty. They've taken that wonderful gift that the chiefs in 1840 gave to all the people of New Zealand, uh, law and order and an egalitarian society where we were all subjects of Queen Victoria. We had all of the benefits and obligations that went along with that. And we had a very, very successful country right up until uh, all the of this nonsense was uh, foisted on us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So this mm -hmm. Right. And uh, yes, also, all full and final settlements with Maori were completed under the Fraser government in uh, 1944 and 1975. And um, what 
the last one was, or at least the 1944 one was, was a settlement to Naitahu, and we have it right here, written up at the time, the full and final settlement with Naitahu. And the agreement was that payments would be made for a 30-year period of so much per annum. And that all came to the end in uh, 1974 when Maturata was the Minister of Maori Affairs. And with the stroke of a pen, he put down uh, in perpetuity. In other words, uh, this payment was to go on ad infinitum. Okay, now, the roll-on effect of that was that all sorts of other things had to be uh, addressed. And uh, we had um, a professor, uh, Michael Belgrave of Massey University, uh, who wrote a book in 2004. He said, most New Zealanders would be very surprised to learn that all of the um, uh, you know, grievances before the Waitangi Tribunal at the moment have already been settled by this means or that means. There was really very little or nothing left. Yep. And uh, the Longy and Palmer government even uh, consulted with um, Richard Hill to... Uh, have him write up, well, are there any outstanding settlements with Tainui and all that? And so Hill wrote a report showing that, uh, well, ostensibly everything was cleaned up. But what happened? We had to, you know, everything got put into retrospective yes, always. Uh, <clears throat> claiming, and we had to go all the way back, and it just opened this Pandora's box of claims that had already been settled, in some cases, up to eight times in the past. Uh, Taranaki is a, a, an example. It was fully purchased from uh, Te Kuiti and Te Raupraha, uh in 1839 by the New Zealand Company. But then Te Whero Whero of Manukau turned around and said, why did you pay those guys? I conquered them. You owe me. So then Hobson had to go to Te Whero Whero and uh, he had to buy it all over again. And we have in Land Information New Zealand the big maps of everything was purchased. So then the settlers moved in there and they created farms and they, they worked extremely hard for all these years. And then John Whiteley, the missionary, doing his Christian duty, wanted to pay ransoms or have ransoms paid and free the Taranaki slaves, the people that Te Whero Whero had captured and taken back to uh, Manukau. And these people were being worked to death, uh, a lot of cannibalism. And uh, anyway, a deal was struck so they could return to Taranaki, but they were to stay to the north of the Waitara River. Well, they look, got down there, they looked over and saw all these lovely farms, these animals, ooh, that's not too bad. So then they started causing trouble, and uh, one thing led to another, and then we ended up uh, with Fitzroy, a weak, very, very weak governor who coming in, um, and uh, <laughs> he was wishy-washy. Honey Hecky saw how wishy-washy he was, so uh, he did his revolt in 1845. Then uh, all sorts of trouble occurred in Taranaki, and 
the settlers who'd bought a whole lot of land got moved off, and then they had to rebuy it again. And we, it, it's a mess. It is a mess. And those uh, people who lost their land after having bought it many times and worked it so hard, no compensation for them. Which is like the farmers of today, actually. Same thing is happening, just under a different cloak. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, we can uh, proceed to uh, actually have a look at one of the major glitches of the treaty signing process. And I'll say this, that every document sent out by the government to the treaty assemblies around New Zealand were all in the Maori language, and there were no exceptions to this rule. There you go. Right. <clears throat> but something happened. Um, Hobson had his stroke. He returned with Freeman, his secretary, aboard HMS Herald on the 6th of uh, March, 1840. He got carried in a, on a litter to the home of Reverend Davis in Waimate, and uh, he was incapacitated for many, many months and uh, couldn't sign anything with his right hand. Uh, he got his ability to sign back uh, within a few months. But um, Willoughby Shortland, the colonial secretary, had to take over the government. So the first thing Willoughby Shortland did was try to organise the treaty assemblies that were not yet dealt with. One of these was uh, an area of the west coast that was Manukau, Port Waikato, and then Kafia. Yeah. So the uh, Deputy Surveyor General of New Zealand, W.C. Simmons, who was a very literal, uh, literate um, individual in the Maori language, he had a vocabulary of about 3,000 words. He was, he was good. And he was assigned to uh, take a treaty sheet in Maori to Manukau, Port Waikato, Monsell's mission, and then onwards to Kafia, to the Wesleyan mission down there under Reverend Whiteley. Okay, so he heads on down country, leaving Paihir, I think it was on the 13th of, of um, uh, March, and uh, he got to Manukau, and Chief Rewa, who was one of Pompelier's uh, congregation, had rushed down ahead of him and said, don't sign it, don't sign it, because Pompelier seemingly wanted New Zealand to be a French colony rather than an English one. So anyway, poor old W.C. Simmons, he just walked into a brick wall and he um, really had very, very little success there. He got no signatures on his first attempt so he decided to hang around for a little while and hold a second meeting and he tarried there a little too long and he held a second meeting and finally managed to get three Nati Fatua signatures. So now he's got to get all the way through to Monsell at Port Waikato. So he had his boat taken over the portage, I guess, or down the Wairoa River. And, um, yeah, then he got to Monsell three days too late with the document that he was supposed to bring, which was this document here, which we can bring up on screen. That's called the Kafia Treaty, that one. 
I don't know if I'm speaking in the mic or Yeah, no, okay. it's, it's the mic. It's okay. yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll bring that up. Okay, We've we can got bring that there up. Somewhere. There it is on there screen. Is. Yeah, okay. So that's the one. We're putting them through the ringer again, Martin. Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing it to them. Okay, so that's the one that Reverend Robert Maunsell was supposed to use all in the Maori language because that was the only uh, language that he was allowed to present the treaty in. If he did not have that text, he was not allowed to make a presentation. But thankfully for uh, Monsell, he had this text, okay. which is a copy we'll of up. the printed Maori. Nope, wrong one. There we and go. And there it is. That. These had been uh, printed, 200 of them, on the CMS Mission Press on the 17th of uh, February 1840 by uh, Reverend Colenso, the mission printer. And that is the text that was the authorised text that had to be presented to anybody gathered in who needed to, uh, you know, hear the Treaty of Waitangi. Okay, so Monsal, uh, he, he had 1,500 Maori gathered in. Uh, they were having a hui there, a business hui of the different tribes, and he had to take advantage of this in order to make his treaty presentation. So he presented this uh, to, um, yeah, it's the, uh, yeah. He, he presented. I think they're just wildly clicking buttons, hoping we get the one we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, so this is what he presented to uh, the Maori people gathered in. And it was accepted very well. Uh, they wanted to sign. They uh, they wanted to cede sovereignty to Queen Victoria, live under those laws, uh, sit in the shadow of the Queen and be protected. There'd been a huge amount of murder and mayhem across New Zealand. They were sick of it. Uh, all of the, uh, the interwars uh, between the different tribes, they wanted an end to it all. They'd had... Over twenty years of it under Hongi Hika and and all of those other groups. Just before you carry on, just to clarify, because this is a salient point people need to understand, is that <laughs> the reason there was so much intertribal warfare was because each area was sovereign unto itself, right? That's right. So there was never one group that could claim the country. They were never united, and therefore those who are going around like with a declaration of independence because they're saying, okay, we don't really understand the treaty; it's a fraud or whatever excuse they're using. And they're talking about uh, He Whakaputanga, or Declaration of Independence, 18, uh, 1835, um, of where that is suddenly the end all and be all of Māori sovereignty because it was recognised that they were sovereign. Yet, of course, you notice a lot of them don't read that document properly or certainly cherry-pick only, and they don't sort of read on. Like uh -huh. For a typical example, the sovereignty of, um, of the Māori nation shall be recognised as being exclusively exercised through the chiefs and heads of hapu, um, upon the lands in which they occupy, um, and they go, there you go, done. Mm -hmm. Different people. Now say Jacinda Ardern told them that Donald Trump mistook her for the wife of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It sounds a trifling matter. Did you tell people that Donald Trump mistook you? I told people that, yes, someone had observed that I'd been mistaken. But that's not the story they gave us. They didn't say someone got it wrong and thought accidentally that Jacinda Ardern had been mistaken. <laughs> they said, no, no, they said Jacinda Ardern was mistaken and Jacinda Ardern told us that she was mistaken by Donald Trump. And it's quite complicated. It's not, but it's not, it's not, it's actually not. Okay. Did you say to Tom Sainsbury 
that, just, that, that Donald Trump mistook you for Justin Trudeau's wife. I gave him a short version, which was in behind the scenes at the Music Awards. I know. What was the short version? The shortened version was that, that there was some confusion over who I was. Observed by someone else. I believe I told him the full story. You believe you did? I believe Two I did. Two people now say that you told them <laughs> that you were mistaken by Donald Trump. I know this seems like a trifling matter, but what I'm suggesting is that and now that you are a world leader, all of these little things can, can blow up to be big. And if, and if you are giving something that is not the entire truth, it can confuse people. No, I'm sharing, I'm sharing this story here. Did you say that that confusion was someone else's confusion or did you imply that it was Donald Trump's confusion? I said there was confusion over who I was. We drum in that messaging around the dangers of COVID pretty diligently for a full two-week period of sustained propaganda. But what they're actually saying, and, and of course, the other part that was cherry-picked, they wouldn't allow no other authority other than them to exist. What they don't then talk about is, is the part that says, unless appointed by them. So now that they've been for years involved in the New Zealand elections, and they've had representation from that area down there, they have been appointed by them. So therefore, that stands... That goes, doesn't it? It's just it's the cherry-picking nature, like you said before, about this, how they're obfuscating history, trying to get rid of it. They're bringing a total fraud, create a gravy train where only the elite Māori get paid, and the rest of them, who we all got on well with, prior to this indoctrination of hate and Marxist ideology, dividing this country and tearing it to pieces, um, has taken precedence. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, well, if you want to talk a little bit about the um, Declaration of Independence for the Confederation of United Chiefs, that was kind of an incentive sort of written up by James Busby when he came uh, and um, then translated by Reverend Henry Williams and co-signed by uh, Clendon, uh, James Reddy Clendon. So who, and, who um, initiated it, Martin? Um Well, really it was uh, Busby, and a lot of people have criticised him that it was really wasn't essential to do something like that, but I yeah. guess Busby thought, well, I've got to make some kind of a declaration or foreign nations are going to come in and just annex New Zealand yeah. or something along those lines. He thought it would protect them. I thought it was important that people know that it was actually not initiated by Māori, like some claim. Yeah, well, yeah, <clears throat> Busby's has received quite a lot of flack about that whole thing. But the thing is, by 1837... The Confederation of United Chiefs were at war with each other, and people like Tamadi Wakanene and his son, at least his brother, Patuone, said, enough of this. You know, we've got to move to a whole new situation, which is a um, colonial government under Queen Victoria. And uh, they were scared of the French, like we've mentioned a bit earlier, and uh, they wanted to sit in the shadow of the Queen. They were fragmented at the time because they had internal fighting, uh, the tribes in the south were rearming to uh, come and deal utu uh, to them for uh, Hongi Hika's sort of trips down country all the way to, I think, Charlotte Sound, you know, waging wow. war and um, paying back utu. Anyway, um, so later Hobson was able to get the treaty, you know, secure a treaty with the northern tribes. And he said, looking at... This instrument I consider to be de facto the treaty and all signatures subsequently obtained 
are merely testimonials of adherence to the terms of the original document. And then he said, well, this number of the uh, signatories of the declar of the Declaration of Independence of uh, the Confederation of United Chiefs have now moved to the treaty. Confederation of Chiefs of the United Tribes of New Tallini. That's the one. Yeah, just yeah. making sure we correct that because we'll get flack otherwise. Absolutely. Anyway, um, so they had moved their position from this to this. And uh, Hobson, you made the thing, I consider this to be de facto the treaty. Yeah. You know, uh, they had definitely made a move from one position to another. And uh, so basically the declaration became a kind of a non-entity. It had yep. served its purpose and uh, it, it had come to an end. Yep. Exactly. So then, Sorry, just hmm? before we go on, I just want to need to clarify this because there's people currently in big movements talking about Declaration of Independence, using the flag, Telling everyone, hey, don't worry, we're sovereign, you come under us, we'll look after you and all that sort of stuff. And most of these groups, unfortunately, are just doing power plays. They're still fragmented, even amongst what they call their own, where we're all meant to be one. They're meant to be our kind, we're meant to be their kind now. But it just hasn't really worked out that way, has it? Because no, it, of a fraud it, it was by nullified. their kind. The, the whole thing was nullified when they signed the treaty. And... Um, I don't understand why they try and make the declaration apply to the whole country when really it was just something with Napui. The only major individual outside of uh, the North was very late in the piece, Te Fero Fero signed it. He became a member as well. Right. But other than that, it's only a small group or a group in the North. That it even certainly has to. nothing to do with the rest of the country no, or the South no, Island. No. Yeah. So going back to what actually happened at Port Waikato, here's Maunsell. His sheet doesn't arrive. He's got to innovate. He's got to come up with something or he's going to miss a marvellous opportunity. So he's got the text, not a problem. So oh, he, look at that, eh? I was waiting to see if they were onto it. Yeah. And boom, there it is. There it is. Wow. Awesome. Uh, okay. So he read that to them, and they came forward and began to sign. But unfortunately, at the bottom is only that much room. Are you able to take that up? So we can see the signatures at the bottom. Yep, there it is. Very good. So only five chiefs were able to sign the document. And Maunsell, he didn't have much space either, so over in the end, over at the side, he crammed in his name, you know, signed sort of before me, R. Maunsell. Okay, so we know that Maunsell read all this to them, to this group, and he put a signature on it. But there were more chiefs who wanted to come forward and sign. So what was he going to do? Well, it just so happened that uh, James Stuart Freeman, who really, really loved uh, the hard work that he put into his memorial document uh, before it got ruined by uh, Hobson's tortured signature, that document had plenty of room on it. So it was put on the table as the repository of overflow signatures. 
the actual wording on it had no relevance whatsoever. I mean, he could have put any piece of paper on the table. I guess he chose that one because it looked uh, quite impressive and, you know, it was a very auspicious occasion or what. Yeah. But anyway, it just became the repository of the overflow signatures. Okay, so he's had a very successful bout with his treaty assembly. He's got five signatures on the one document. That everyone agreed to. That everyone agreed to. This is all they heard, just that. They heard what they were supposed to hear. And then there was another overflow of 32 signatures managed to get on the other sheet. So he had a total of 37 signatures. Okay, so Morsel's too late. At least uh, W.C. Simmons is too late with his document. And he sees that Morsel's had tremendous success. And he initially was going to carry on further south um, and go and see Reverend Whiteley. But then when he looked at the uh, signatures that he had on hand, he uh, thought, well, all of the paramount or, or major chiefs of the area have already signed all the way down to Kafia. So, look, I should send this document that I brought down to Reverend Whiteley and I should grab this make-do treaty by Monsal, return to Manukau, and this list of uh, signatures will so impress them that they will want to sign the treaty, this treaty, yeah. on my third attempt. And so that's what he did. He The uh, document was sent by Morsel down to um, Kafia, that is the one that Simmons had arrived with. That's with the five signatures? Um, uh, no, it didn't have the five signatures. All it had oh, was... that the overflow, was, it? Yeah. Um, he only at the beginning had... Three signatures of Nati Fatua. Oh, right, yes, yes. And he didn't have any more. Okay, so he headed, headed back to Manukau, and he uh, had another go there, and he managed to get another seven signatures. So that was the best he could do. So he's got ten signatures that he has gotten himself, um, yeah, uh, in his incentive. So... Um, then what he does is he's got to uh, put the uh, two pieces of paper that comp that, that uh, were Morsel's make-do treaty, he had to put them together into a document or into a pouch and uh, send them back to Hobson. Now, there are fold lines in these documents. We can see them clearly. So what you do is you fold on the fold lines. Yep. And you get to find out uh, that that one was folded perfectly into that one for carrying it, you know. Yep. So there's nothing that um, – it's not – I haven't got it fully in there, but um, it just fits perfectly. Yep. So, um, yeah, uh, and then – when the documents did get back to Hobson, they weren't the authentic documents of, uh, you know, uh, Willoughby Shortland, sent out by Willoughby Shortland uh, for use there. But he could see that the chiefs had wanted to cede sovereignty to Queen Victoria. They had 
put down their wish. It had all been witnessed by Maunsell and um, Ashwell, um, the uh, the other missionary who was there. And uh, so Hobson then attached uh, seals and he uh, made it so that it was now recognised as a make-do document that would go into the uh, the dossier of, uh, of documents. So what we've got to prove and what the uh, grievance industry don't want to have known... Nitty-gritty. ...is that two pieces of paper were used together at Port Waikato. And we can prove that they were used together in many, many ways, even forensically now. But uh, what we could do, I don't know if we can move on. We have a little, oh, we'll, we'll see it when we see the video, I suppose. Um, <coughs> Is that the video what, we played at the beginning? No, no we don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, it's in that one, yeah. But don't worry about it. What uh, W.C. Simmons uh, says to Hobson is that he is submitting, I am submitting to Your Excellency, upwards of 40 signatures. Okay, 40 signatures and upwards of that. So more than 40 signatures. Right, okay. So if Maunsell only used, as the grievance industry says, the very defective English sheet, well, it's got... Uh, well, by the time um, Simmons had added seven more signatures on his third try at Manukau, we have a total of 39 signatures. So we have less than 40 signatures. But if we include the other one with five signatures on it, we have that was a part of that, we have... 44 signatures. And so even the writing of W.C. Simmons um, verifies that the two documents were used together. Perfect. And there's also other forensic evidence, isn't there? Right. With the so, so what that actually means is the English sheet that is the darling of the grievance industry is utterly illegitimate. It was not read to the crowd, which makes sense. Like if I was going to be considering a treaty, I wouldn't want to go along and read something in Cantonese. Yeah. Um, so uh, look at that. Can you hold it up? This one here. Okay, the darling. Okay, yep. All right, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do hold that. your water for you. Uh, don't. Don't uh, you take my water. Pump. Okay. Sponsorship. No. Here it is. That's it at full size. That's how big these pieces of paper were. Wow. Imagine rolling the doobie in that. Yep. And so, okay, there's the terrible tortured the signature that Thompson put on it, which rendered it an absolute waste of time and had to be thrown away. Otherwise, it would reflect upon Hobson's ability to carry on and become governor of New Zealand. Um, somebody else would have had to take over if uh, he got um, considered to be not up to the uh, play for that. And um, 
So yeah, all total, that sheet has 39 signatures on it, and it's only with the other five oh, that you get. Yeah, that's oversized, that one. It was a much smaller sheet. Um, it was a tiny little thing, really. Uh, here, here's oh, here here's okay. the real size okay, of it. Let's, let's get fact and evidence based here. Yep. So you put that up on there. You wax glue it to the other one. You then fold it all together. Oh, look at that. It's disappeared in the green screen. Yeah. There, oh, oh okay. Like, yeah, all right. You hold it then. Oh, look at that. <laughs> it's like an X-ray mountain. <laughs> I knew I had no heart. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what Sarah tells me. Anyway. Yeah. And, uh, yep, that's how the deception has uh, been hatched. Yep. So. <laughs> Very interesting. So it should be the Maori document that should have been the, the main one, but then they put this other English one on that's become the overlay on it. That's right. And, and isn't the, the actual translation. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a hodgepodge. It is yeah. nothing like the Maori one. Reverend it was only to Henry carry the Williams. other signatures. Yes. Yeah. Henry Williams could never have used that to create Te Tauritio Waitangi text. Um, it's been many, many years, and I hate to try it out now, but I used to do translation work. And I know if something is stated on that line, then that's what you put on this line. You may have to change parts of speech to make it sound correct to the native speaker. You know, there's that kind of thing that you might have to do. But technically, line by line by line, it will read the same, and you will end up with approximately the same word weight per mm. sentence. You won't have something that rambles on, kind of like what I'm doing. We'll bring that one up again. That's fine. See, so, so what? Put it home for people. So, so what? Yeah, if you, if you, uh, that's kind of at the top. Just bring that down and down and down. So you can see how the other one carries on. And, and, and you'll see how much longer it is and how you've got all of the surplus words that never made it into Te Tauritio Waitangi. Yeah, that's a big difference. Because that initial Littlewood Treaty, the English translation of the original Māori version, went missing. Yeah, what is... The, the Littlewood document was the final English draft... The Maori one was the translation. Yeah. So one preceded the other. Yeah. yeah. The English one came first. But rem then the Maori one. Yes. And then the English one went missing. Yes. And they only had the Maori one for so many years. And then they brought this other one on that's superseded everything. That's so right. Hodgepodge. The whole idea, the whole incentive, it seems, of Maturata, Maturata, totally replaced our treaty wording. We have only one treaty. In the Maori language, and it is internationally recognised as say. the only treaty wording, but it's been completely tampered with. Uh, it's been pushed into the shadows. At least the Maori one's been pushed into the shadows. It's not it's consulted. It. Yeah. My God, and the principles have been brought in. Absolutely, university. absolutely. That's it. No, the crux of the matter is this. Excuse us while we have this little debate here. Is it the what people have got to realize? It's the Maori one, Maori text only that was ever read to the people. The English one was simply just while they're drafting what they will put into the Maori one to explain to people what's going to happen. That's how it worked. It was when so it doesn't matter even if the Little World Treaty went missing at the time, 
The Māori translation, if done properly, will still equate to the same. It's they decided, oh, look, we've got no English one. It's gone missing. This is what it really means over here, which is not the translation or literal translation at all. And that's where your grievance started. And that's where the racism started. And that's when it's projection. Mm-hmm. When, when you want to blame someone else for what you're doing, you project. And that's exactly what's happened. So while we're all being called for everything under the sun, it's actually, if you want to take coins, your coins, that stuffed it up, not ours. But I'm just saying, bring it up to this. Nineteen seventy-five, Waitangi Treaty Act. Then from then on, they brought in all these principles. That's that right. Gone throughout all of our legislation. He'll talk mm-hmm. about that now. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> what it is, okay, uh, be it was, now. was reinterpreting everything. So they're reinterpreting the lot. They've got this thing. They're muddying the waters. Uh, they've got these strange, convoluted arguments about what this means and what that means. Whereas it was once clear, and uh, so yes, uh, they brought in these principles which are totally indefinable. And when they brought them in initially, I think it was Winston Peters and many others said, "We don't want that in our legislation." Yep. So um, yeah, Winston uh, used to be very, very good. Uh, We're going to bring up a couple of articles now for people okay. to have a look. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So when the uh, Littlewood document came back into the public arena, what happened is I managed to get an article into Investigate magazine, and uh, that was in 2003, December, and that flowed over into the issue, you know, of uh, January uh, 2004, same issue. Right after that, Don Brash made his Oriwa speech. Then, shortly after that, Winston Peters stood up in Parliament and he said, we've got to start using the Littlewood Treaty because it was the the last one that was made as our authority when we're making, doing like English interpretations of the Treaty of Waitangi. So this article was written by Audrey Young and I believe it was uh, three times within the article he mentioned Littlewood Treaty. But Ian Wishart had said uh, on his talkback radio show at the time that his colleagues had said to him that they were absolutely forbidden to mention the words Littlewood Treaty in any of the media uh, programs or, uh, you know, so that was a real taboo. You weren't allowed to do it. But obviously Audrey Young slipped up. She quoted uh, Winston uh, completely. And so we'll go to the next one, go down a little bit. That uh, text about the Littlewood Treaty went in out to the Bay of Plenty and uh, in the first edition. Then another lady comes whipping in to do damage control, Helen Tuna, and she goes through it and she strips out all references to the Littlewood Treaty and turns what had been a totally dynamic article into a very sterile one. (laughs) I mean, here was a major parliamentarian um, saying that the text that we were using at the time was illegitimate and needed to be replaced and that we need to consult the final English draft or the Littlewood Treaty. 
And there it is. And, uh, yeah, it's been very, very hard to uh, get word about uh, this document found in 1989 out into the public arena. We've had to fight very, very hard. We get no help whatsoever from the academics. Um, Why is that? Why, why? You've actually had a running battle with a couple of them. Well, I've had a running battle with a lot of them. Yeah, because they, it seems that they have uh, certain go-tos, what we call go-tos, whenever something has to be substantiated by, you know, on mm-hmm. behalf of government, they bring out a willing, useful idiot to come and say, yes, that's right, because I have these credentials. I call um, them renter pricks. Yeah, but then that would be a pretty apt description, actually. That yeah, would- and, um, yeah, yeah. So when they want to sway public opinion, yeah, they they trot out somebody who's considered to be a great expert of everything, and uh, this person gives the appropriate opinion that the government wants. Uh, it's like put actually out Bloomfield there. in his um, safe and effective jabs. Uh-huh. You know, you're not allowed to talk about hydroxychloroquine. You're not allowed to talk about ivermectin, anything like that. They sort of get rid of that and censor that. But you can talk about. COVID-19, mm-hmm. the pandemic that never got started, never got out of the starting block. Well, we can actually move on now to one more item. You know, we've I've set out my article in dirty trick number one, dirty trick number two, dirty trick number three. Nice. And a lot of these are kind of like a sleight of hand magician's trick where, oh, uh, don't look there, look over here. Like Jacinda, look at my teeth. Don't look at what I'm doing. Yeah, so um, what uh, they came up with, another one of their... <laughs> We're still trying to find documents. Okay, so the, the certified treaty. It's, um, it's where there was a dispatch that went out from New Zealand uh, in February 1840, and there was a, an enclosure. It actually ended up being three enclosures, and this dispatch, I think, in... Uh, two extra ones in, uh, on the 25th year, and there's another one earlier. Um, but um, there's another big lie told by the grievance industry, which uh, says or tries to convince New Zealanders that there's something called the Certified Treaty of Waitangi, and it's a tremendous lie. Okay, so it's a rather yellowish uh, copy of a document. Um, I don't know if I've got a copy of it here. Um, based on a microfilm. So, so while while they're while they're looking for that, give us a bit of a rundown on the type of um, attacks you've had. That's it. There. Oh, here we go. Let's we just go straight it. back into it then. Right. We'll do my little story later. Yeah, I'm sure it's very very interesting. It was actually it was going to prompt you for one actually, but it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll even make it bigger. Yeah. Now this is only. The last page of this document, all written by James Stuart Freeman, and it's one of his formal royal style copies that he's sending in this dispatch. Right, so you get a bit further down, and the formal royal style text comes to an end, and then, you know, they're uh, doing something uh, to conserve paper, which I guess was a pretty uh, high-priced commodity in those days. And so he enters into a business section and he tra- tells uh, Governor Sir George Gipps or Lord Normanby, whoever got it, that um, 52 chiefs have signed up 
further north, and then another 78. So he's submitting uh, word that another 130 chiefs have signed the treaty. Then he goes down a bit further, and he writes um, this. He says uh, the wording, if you can bring it up a little bit bigger, uh, this uh, translation, can you read it there? Okay. Uh, I certify that this uh, trans... Yeah. A, a bit further down, yeah. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, so he, he's certifying that this is as literal a translation as the uh, idiom of language will admit of, I think, uh, are his words. And then you've got signed Henry yep. Littlewood. What the grievance industry don't tell you is Williams, that Williams, the yeah. text further up, yeah, yeah, Henry, Henry Williams. Sorry, what are we doing? Okay, getting, right, we're just keeping fact and evidence based. Yeah, getting late. Okay, <laughs> yeah, well, this is the second part. People don't realize we've been right. here all day. So the text above wasn't written by Henry Williams, the official translator. It was written by James Stuart Freeman. That's his handwriting. Oh, right. So he's provided a space for Henry Williams <laughs> to uh, certify his work. Yeah. Okay. So the grievance industry says, see, even Henry Williams himself has certified that this is the, you know, the, the treaty wording and, you know, as close as the idiom of language will allow. And, um, Ridiculous but, thing. Okay, but there are other things that were sent in this enclosure. So um, if you go back uh, to some of the other uh, pages, uh, I can hold, okay, that one there. Uh -oh. Okay, if that can be brought up, the Maori one. Okay, you can expand that one perhaps. If you can. No, uh, no the, the, you had it. You had it right. You don't have that one. You have the other one. The Maori oh, one, yeah, boy. that one. If you can expand it a bit, I don't know if you can. Yeah, but that is pretty good. A handwritten copy of Teiteriti O Waitangi by the translator Reverend Henry Williams, handwritten for the archives of. Well, he, he sent them to various locations. Uh, one was sent to Clendon. Another one went in this dispatch uh, overseas and ended up uh, either with Sir George Gipps or um, with uh, Lord Normanby in England, you know, to go into their files. But not only that, he also, in the dispatches or the dispatch of the 25th of February 1840, sent... Three of these, I think it was three. Uh, I've got two of them uh, listed on my website, but I think there were three. And uh, yep, three so, of those. That's the one. Well, we got it. Right, you got it. Wow, yeah, we're, we're so we're doing it now. So now we know what Reverend Henry Williams was certifying. He wasn't certifying this defunct uh, text by uh, James Stuart Freeman. He was certifying his own work, his own translation. And uh, a bit earlier on, uh, somewhere in there, we had a, a picture of Ruth Ross. We should mention Ruth if we can find a picture. 
Now, this lady was a really dynamic New Zealand historian. We can pick up all your laughter and everything from over here. Just come on in. We should have just come around and have a seat. Hey, we should just get in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sort of all this. Like, there's the, your water, the, Martin. The, the, the peanut gallery yeah. over there. Yeah. Cheap seats. Live studio audience. Okay. So Ruth Ross was a very uh, astute historian. And uh, when Maturata was talking or, you know, he wanted to kind of launch his pet uh, incentive, which was to do with bringing in a, a, like a Treaty of Waitangi Act and all of that, more around 1970, or he, he sort of touted it, I think, for a number of years, but um, it didn't really come into fruition until uh, 1974, uh, you know, when they uh, gained power. Um, oh, it was 72, uh, the, um, the end of 72. Uh, and uh, the, uh, he, he was Minister of Maori Affairs. Ruth Ross went through to try and analyse all of these formal royal-style uh, treaty documents, and she had to come to the conclusion that none of these were ever used to create Teitoritio Waitangi and Teitoritio Waitangi was never used to create any of them. And she had to conclude that Reverend Henry Williams and his son uh, uh, Edward Marsh Williams had used an altogether different treaty text now lost. And wow. um, she passed away, unfortunately, a number of years before the uh, finding of the Littlewood document in 1989, but if she had have seen that, or if she had have been able to find uh, a lot of the documents that were missing in the enclosures, or if she had have been able to see what Clendon sent on the 20th of February 1840, or what Wilkes sent on the uh, 6th of April, uh, uh, was it 3rd of April, 6th of April, um, 1840, she would have understood exactly what had happened. You've got an impressive recall. You've been, you've been munching on those ginkgo leaves, have you? Yeah. <clears throat> so can I can't remember what I had for breakfast. How does it fit in with the pinholes, and how can you prove without a doubt that those documents were part of the same? Yeah, okay, well... Um, what it is, uh, I'm not able to necessarily write directly to archives. <laughs> um, I have a reputation, apparently, and um, some doors that get closed on me. Although, archives at time, when I was writing my book, they were very nice. Uh, they gave me all of the um, watermarks. They, they actually got a light box, and they got the documents, and they put them on the light box and put pages on that and showed me all of the watermarks of... Uh, the paper that uh, Hobson was using, the paper that James Stuart F Freeman was using, the paper that um, uh, Busby was using in their portfolios, these, these ones, yes, absolutely wonderful. And uh, also the document, right there. the document that, um, you know, Clendon, the paper that Clendon was using, he was the only one in New Zealand that was using it, uh, that the Littlewood document ended up being uh, written on. So um, anyway, uh, so they were they were very good 
in their time for a while. But what we needed was um, <laughs> I needed to see the rear side of the printed sheet. Not the front side, but the rear side <laughs> at very high resolution. I can't actually see that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> so what I needed to see, because I knew it had happened, was that this one had been wax glued to that one at some point, and I wanted to see when it was ripped away from there, whether fibre damage had occurred between the two sheets, like if this sheet had shared some of its fibres with that one and vice versa, yep. or any uh, paste glue or any pinholes where they were put together. Anyway, uh, my colleague... Serenity. <laughs> um, well, That's a shout-out right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, wrote to the archives and um, basically asked for this information under an official information request, and uh, it, we ended up getting it. After how long? Uh, well, something like six months. So... Uh, what we then did, I got my son, who's very, very good on the computer, to take both sheets because we were also supplied with all of the um, work that had been done on the treaty sheets uh, right back to the 1980s and I think even beyond that, showing every pinhole, every ma, every tear, and also the exact, absolutely exact dimensions of the sheets themselves. So these were taken into Photoshop by my son, who then uh, sized them absolutely perfectly, then using high-resolution imagery supplied by archives, we were able to pick up on the, the, the holes and uh, all of the kind of the damage and show positively that there was shared fiber damage, but the main thing that we saw was how a big long stick pin had gone through one area, stuck to both sheets together, and there was absolutely perfect damage and holes on the front sheet and the back sheet. And so, um, yeah, we were able to prove that they had been stick pinned together. And based on that information... I got in contact with uh, Peter Dunn, who was then head of archives, and formally requested that they do a full forensic analysis on these sheets because we now knew positively that the two of them were joined together. And if the two of them were joined together, then the entire grievance industry philosophy and argument absolutely evaporates. Falls to pieces. We're going to take a dramatic pause here while that sinks into people's heads. Think of everything you've gone through, all the angst, all the arguments, all the protests, all the riots, all the attacks. Yeah, the ad hominem abuse. attacks, uh, you get plenty of them. But yep. 
it doesn't worry me at all. If the ad hominem attacks ever stopped, then I would know that I wasn't being effective or that, uh, gosh, I better, uh, you know, uh, get into the play again. Oh, hang on. We're about to get another interjection. I thought I'd just announce it before it comes instead of okay. just getting the old fight across um, the starboard. I just, I've got another question. Talk louder, because so this is the microphone um, here. How it, we are all one people. <laughs> we are all one people. We are all... British subjects under, well, Queen Elizabeth now. We're part of the Commonwealth, of course, and, uh, yeah, we are That's all one people. Document. That's There's in the original document. document. Everything says that um, there are no special customary rights or anything that apply to one group over another. That doesn't apply to the other, yep. Yeah, everybody is absolutely equal under the law, Um there are no second-class citizens. We're absolutely the same. We are all British subjects altogether. And that, now the controversy is, sorry to interrupt. You're not sorry. <laughs> you keep doing it. One more. With Hepuapua, which is now based on all this addition that you've got on the left-hand side, Yep. where they are saying Indigenous or you know what they claim is Indigenous has customary rights to the water and seabed and the, and the resources they have. And so they're splitting, now under Hepuapua, they're splitting people based on race. Absolutely. And um, we have a friend who is a, a farmer, a mussel farmer, and he has built up a, a marvellous business, worked very, very hard to do it. And uh, he's under assault at the moment that all of his, um, uh, you know, uh, hard work has got to now basically go to Maori. Um, and, uh, you know, under the sea, uh, foreshore seabed sort of criteria. We've also seen the largest hand-planted forest in the world, uh, in, of the southern hemisphere, that is, go back into Maori ownership. We've lost massive, massive tracts of land, uh, you know, uh, resources by the New Zealand people, things that were owned by the New Zealand people. And uh, there is uh, absolute, absolutely no legitimacy to it Stress, at all. Stick figures. Because you've taken over. Um, <clears throat> this is actually why they decided with the um, to create the New Zealand legal system as a circular thing. That's why they put the Supreme Court in and stopped everyone's rights to go to... Um, Privy anything, Council. Privy Council. Yeah. Because it would undo the sham. It will undo the fraud. However... The one escape clause we have that not many people have realised is that they cut it off at a certain date. Anything over that, or anything past that, you couldn't claim. You couldn't go to the Privy Council. But all of this was before that. Uh -huh. So this is still subject to Well, you would think so, the yes, Privy Council. absolutely. And this evidence would absolutely prove it, and you could undermine and you could take down the New Zealand government because they tried to pull a swifty on us all, a bloodless coup, and with the passing of the 1986 New Zealand um, Constitution Act. Constitution Act. 1986. Palmer, yeah. Yep. And then they decided to devastate us there. And therefore, the corporation took over. New Zealand Incorporated took over. And we no longer have anything to do with the Queen in that respect. Well, legally, them anyway. Because mm -hmm. all acts bind the Crown. They are the Crown. We're not. So uh -huh. it doesn't bind us. Yeah. So that's what people sort of can't quite get through their head. Yep. Yeah, so I do believe that there's been a huge amount of international interference, and a lot of it has come through the UN. Um, back in the uh, 
early days there when Matu Rata was uh, looking at all sorts of uh, future possibilities, <clears throat> one thing that he really loved was, um, I think it was called at the time, Dundrup, Draft United Nations Rights for Indigenous People. Yeah. And um, I believe it's now Undrip. Uh, the draft part of it's been dropped off it, and uh, it's now a reality. And uh, the UN uses that as a means for breaking up countries. And um, I think there's been a huge amount of foreign interference. Without uh, they've stripped away our sovereignty, <clears throat> and they've stripped away our future. They've gobbled up our resources that used to be owned by the New Zealand public. Um, yep, they've left the country in pretty much tatters. Mm. And all they had to do was divide us. It's an age-old tactic, yep, an age-old tactic that's worked. Well, why would they change it? It keeps working, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. All I've got to say is, hey, Martin, that bloke over there is trying to take your shit. And then I go to that bloke and say, hey, Martin's trying to take your stuff. Then all of a sudden you two are fighting for God knows what reason. Uh And uh, while you're fighting, like us, about issues of no real importance, they're carving up the country. And sell it off to their mates. Yeah, it's sort of like um, something directly out of the Marxist playbook. Divide and rule, you know, find a dissident little group who've got a gripe and then play them against somebody else and get division going. And they don't uh, realise they're the useful idiots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they will, that's right. Because they will be, you, whoever this applies to out there, you will be dispensed with as quick as you got started, as soon as you've brought them to the part of the agenda that mm-hmm. they want. Yep. They've done it throughout history. Yep. That's the big five-minute sign there. We don't have, like, electronics or anything that says five-minute countdown. It's just, oi, five. Uh-huh. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So I believe it's all well proven whether you look at the paper trail, which is absolutely complete, all the way back to Hobson. Um all of the criteria to do with the final English draft found in 1989 is uh, absolutely impeccable. Um, We've caught them out perpetrating an immense fraud. Yes. And uh, all of their sleight of hand tricks and all of their red herrings to guide us off the path, um, it's all exposed now. If our authorities would finally do the forensic work and check out the paper trail. It's funny how forensics be... audits are the thing of the day. Uh-huh. That seems to be uncovering everything. Absolutely, in the yeah, US, the United everything. States, yeah. Forensics, fact and evidence don't lie. That's right. So in keeping with Countersman's fact and evidence-based programming, Countersman and Martin Dutre, more you, we're just, we're just trying to jump on your coattails, um, challenge anyone out there, any of you academics – that have either tried to take Martin apart in the past, because I've seen some of the interviews you've done with him where you've chopped and changed it and tried to make him look like an idiot, yet he's got more intelligence and fact in his little finger than you'll have in your whole body. So if you want to come and debate that, you let us know. Stop just being mass debaters everywhere else. Come here and do it. See how I slipped that in? Yeah, you did. Uh, very clever. And now that I've asked you that, now they get what I was actually saying. I just want to punctuate that point. <laughs> So, once again, we're right, you're wrong. So, we are one people. By the time we got over ourselves and actually got this country back to where it should be. A hell of a good country. 
Yep. Yep. Go to www.calticnewzealand.co.nz. Again, everything we've talked about here is in print. You can read it over and over and over again. You can reference these these shows, comedy routines and all, um, under articles one and two, part one and two, yeah, at the top. You will find this particular. Sorry, I'm just taking instructions. We haven't got any earpieces. And we'll definitely have him back on uh, shortly because, as we promised, we are going to also bring a real history of New Zealand. We will bring the facts and evidence, archives and all, about who was really here first. Not to sort of get one over you or own you or anything like that, but just to sort of start getting rid of the official narrative and bringing the truth. And once we understand the past, we're not likely going to um, let someone else divide us anymore. Because let's face it, we all got on pretty well, eh? Um, well, um, We're like little caramellos now. Yeah, when I was very young, and that's a hell of a long time ago, working yeah. as a carpenter like in a uh, yeah, uh, isolated hamlets in full Maori communities, on full Maori work gangs, we were getting on like a house on fire. Yeah, um, yeah the, the Maori boys, they, they were pretty rough and ready. Um, in areas where I worked, you had most of the truckers, they loved big trucks and machinery, the bulldozer drivers and Bloody good workers it, it, too. Yeah, they loved yeah, they were hard workers and uh we were fine and they took good care of me. I was just a snotty nosed little seventeen year old kid. But uh they, they took real good care of me and um we were all really good mates in those days. But it's the- really a shame to see how much we've been divided. Yeah, and the fact that you're here to give this story and to prove the fraud that's been perpetrated uh, proves that they've got over their cannibalistic ways and you uh, survived. Yeah, well, um, yeah, they, uh, yeah, they were they were good mates there, but um, something treacherous happened to us, and the group came along and stabbed us in the back, all of and us. caused all of this animosity that didn't exist before. It was a situation when I was young where um, we couldn't understand racist stuff in the United States and that, you know. And we couldn't even understand uh, these comedies about the British class system. You know, it just fell on deaf ears. You know, the Brits thought it was really funny, you know, the lower class and the upper class, and we couldn't get it. We're actually moving into full class in the New Zealand. And not only that, um, when they started hatching all of this nonsense back in... 1974 and that, you know, with the marching of the Polynesian Panther Party, the New Zealand uh, Returned Servicemen's Association came out and put out a whole page ad saying, please don't do this to us. We've been comrades in arms through two world wars. You know, we don't have this problem. Right. We've been getting along just fine. And that's the problem, we're, the fact we were getting on, and that's what they don't like. Yeah, and it, it, they said in the article, racism is something that's created by talking about it. Yep. And after that, uh, there were uh, Maori vets who had uh, also served in the forces overseas during the Second World War who came forward and said, please don't do this to us. Yeah. But the rabble-rousers and uh, the hotheads and... All of the uh, the brats who figured they knew a hell of a lot better than all of the adults, they did it to us.
emergency It's all started Everything's begun And you are over Cause we're taking down the CCP Spread the word all through Hong Kong We will fight till they're all gone We rejoice when there's no more Let's take down the CCP They have all life for too long We will end what they do wrong Spread the word all through Hong Kong Let's take down the CCP